0: As Denise mentioned, we are going through the crucifixion account during the Christmas season. Um, someone asked me last Sunday, or a little, maybe a little while ago, did you mean to end, did you mean to have the, the crucifixion be during the Christmas season? And the answer is yes, absolutely, I did. I wanted it to be a little bit darker um, during Christmas, because one of my, I just met a, kind of a hero this past week, who is against Christmas, and he's kind of a hero in my mind, because he was talking about the pagan roots of the way we celebrate Christmas and the Christmas industrial complex that is out to get you to spend the money. And I super admire that. He was a kid that when his parents asked him to make a wish list for Christmas, he refused. He refused presents. Mad respect. Mad respect for this guy. And I just also want to note in the biblical idea that the Gospel of Mark does not have anything about the birth of Jesus. It does not mention the birth of Jesus at all. But the last three chapters of the Gospel of Mark is all about the crucifixion. So hopefully you'll recognize that I'm giving, I'm trying to give proper weight to how the cross affects every aspect of our life And it's not as much of an emphasis on Jesus' birth, which obviously is important, right? Which Which is important, and yet the Gospels emphasize the crucifixion the most. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to chapter 15 of the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to read from verse 33 to 39, and I'm going to take this in chunks. And now we are in the midst of the crucifixion itself. And I think we'll have, yes, and I think we'll have slides also with the scriptures. I'm just going to read to 39, but we will be covering to verse 47. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So that's the beginning of our scripture reading, and we're going to be examining this crucifixion account. And the first thing I want you to notice is that beginning in verse 33, when it talks about the darkness, the 6th hour is noon, and the ninth hour is 3 p.m. And so there's a period of darkness for three hours in the middle of the day. And we may not think that darkness is that significant, but darkness is way more significant in the ancient Near East than it is today, because light today is very cheap. With, because of LED lights, you have brightness everywhere. And actually, there's a name for it. It's called light pollution. And you'll notice in the richest neighborhoods of the Bay Area... I'm thinking particularly like Saratoga. In the richest areas of the Bay Area, there are no street lights. There's regulations against having light because light prevents you from seeing the stars, right? And people want to appreciate the stars. But the problem is when you have no light, and light and darkness has a rich history of meaning, when you have no light and there's no movie theaters and there's no Netflix and there's, there's nothing you can do that's... that's and and people really, most people can read, there was little that you could do in the evening when it was dark. And that's why throughout a lot, of, a lot of ancient history, whatever happens in the dark is usually something evil and it's mysterious. And so when you see darkness here, it doesn't have a good connotation. There's something negative and evil that's happening when you have the appearance of darkness and it covers the entire land. It sounds like it's, it's impenetrable. And at that point in time, for those three hours, which is had to feel like an eternity, especially for Jesus who is suffering. He cries out. He cries out. And this cry is a lament, and it's a question. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the idea, the premise of that cry is that he has been neglected. That God the Father has deserted Jesus And yet the people that, the bystanders who hear it believe that he's calling down Elijah because Eloi sounds like Elijah, right? There's a similarity in that speech that makes them think about Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet who didn't die and was taken away. And so the common understanding was that when someone's calling Elijah, Elijah was someone who could save, who could rescue people. And that's why they think he's calling Elijah Elijah. And yet, for those who are aware of their Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, what Jesus is saying is quoted verbatim from Psalm 22, verse 1. And so anyone who is familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, and there might not have been many people at that time, but certainly the chief priests and scribes would have recognized that reference coming from Psalm 22. And what that means is this whole, we need to read, we we need to understand what that psalm says to think about what Jesus meant when he was dying on the cross. And so I'd encourage you on your own to read it, but I'm going to read a couple verses from it. Because Psalm 22 contains prophecy that was being fulfilled as during the whole entire crucifixion account. And so let me read, I'm just going to read a couple verses. I'll start with Psalm 22, verse 6 through 8. And this is a psalm that's attributed to David. So it's a royal psalm. And verse 6 says, But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by my scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. As I've mentioned throughout the Gospels, the emphasis isn't just on the physical suffering Jesus experienced experiences, it's also and always about the social pain, the humiliation and the disgrace. Because he's a king, but this is the opposite of how you're supposed to treat a king. And then notice in verse seven of the Psalm, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. That's a reference to Mark fifteen, twenty nine, which is the above verses that we, had, we didn't read, but it's in the previous passage, that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, he would, who, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So all of this in Psalm 22 is prophecy that is being fulfilled in the moment of the cross. And it keeps going. In twenty-two sixteen, it says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And I just want to pause there in verse 16 of Psalm 22. It says, they have pierced my hands and feet. Note the specificity of the cross, because crucifixion wasn't actually that common within the ancient Near East. And it became more common throughout the Roman Roman Empire. And yet what we see here is a specific prophecy about crucifixion, that this king will be crucified. His hands and feet will be pierced. Verse 17, I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, a prophecy that is fulfilled in the crucifixion account. And so this is all the specificity that you'll notice. And all of it's important to help us recognize that Jesus understood exactly what was happening. And he understood the significance of what he was doing. And so this is a specific type of king, a crucified king whose reign is eternal. And as Denise was talking about how the cross informs everything we do, what I want to propose is that this darkness that Jesus experiences is actually a normative aspect of our brokenness of our lives. Denise asked you to do an assessment of the, of the role work plays in your life. And for me, as I mentioned, I checked every box. And the way that this world is structured, the way God has allowed this world to operate, is that darkness happens to expose idols in our life. Darkness happens to expose how wretched and how broken and how we trust in things other than himself. And so what I want us to understand here is that this type of death that Jesus is suffering is actually kind of a normative, is a normative experience for the Christian. Because when you profess to believe in Jesus, you are also experiencing along with him that death. And all of, the, all of life is structured in a way because of the brokenness of this world that we're going to be challenged. We're going to receive, we're going to be tested to see what is really inside of our hearts. And at this moment, you also get to see what is happening inside of Jesus and that he is suffering, that he is experiencing great pain and he's asking the question, God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he feels complete isolation and disappointment and pain. And so what we want to recognize, we want to meditate on and think about today is that there is a normative part of everyone's life where you will experience darkness, where you will experience pain. And if you haven't experienced that um, in your own work, you haven't worked long enough. (laughs) Or you haven't not worked long enough because there was a pain from not working also because that's the way God designed you to. And so either way, whether whether you're, you're working or you're not working, there is a kind of pain, there's a kind of darkness that you experience. And so what I want to continue to read or continue to recognize is that even though we recognize Jesus is suffering alone at this point, he understands. Jesus understands by quoting the psalm that there is a bigger purpose to his suffering, that it connects with something in the past, that it connects him as a king. So even though Jesus suffers alone, there is a greater meaning in his suffering. And that is also comfort and encouragement for us that even though you may suffer, there is actually a greater meaning in your suffering because Jesus suffered on your behalf. Psalm 22, 27 through 30 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship; before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. So, even in the midst of this pain and the struggle and disappointment, the writer of Psalm 22 recognizes there's something beyond the grave. There is a, there is at the end of this, of turning to the Lord, and all families and all nations coming to turn to Him. And so, there's something good at the end, even of death. Let me keep reading in Mark 15. I'm going to read verse 40 to 47. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, Joseph, saw where he was laid. So I want you to notice that there's three groups of people. Actually, we're mentioning three groups of people. In This text the first is so then they're all unlikely people at the end of at the end of the section the previous section That's in verse 39 you have the centurion a roman centurion who is watching like his job is to is basically to call the time of death That's the roman centurion's job And as he is watching jesus and he sees the way jesus breathes his last and it sounds like there is a dignity in the way jesus dies and we don't know that for certain, but that's the appearance of it, because it, he saw that in this way, he breathed this last. And the Roman centurion says, and notice no one else says it. No one else does it. Not even any Jews say this, but it says, truly, this man was the son of God. And so this unlikely person, this Gentile, this Roman centurion, recognizes in the darkness the courage of Jesus. And it takes courage for the, for the centurion to be able to say this. And then you have the second group in this section, in verse 40. You have women who are watching from a distance. And notice that all the men who were on Jesus' side are gone. The men are done. You have Judas, the betrayer. You have the disciples discerning him. You have Peter, part of Jesus' inner circle, who denies Jesus three times. And the men are gone. And the only ones who are part of Jesus' disciples group are the women. And these are ones who have been with him for a long time and they're mentioned by name. And I think that's important because oftentimes Christianity is viewed as oppressing women. And yet in this moment, it's the women that are left. And these women who are heroic in watching Jesus and being able to stand this pain and still be next to him and still be around him. And so they demonstrate courage in the midst of this darkness. The other, the other aspect that's important and that, that the women uh, witnessed this is women were considered unreliable witnesses in the ancient Near East. They're considered unreliable. And yet you have these women here who are his disciples, who are witness this, and then will, will later also bear witness to the resurrection. I also want to maybe trigger your imagination towards one thing. In Matthew's account of the gospel, there's a slaughter. Herod orders a slaughter of male Jewish infants under the age of two. And so many babies die. And I wonder what it was like if there were possibly a mother who had been present at Jesus' death. A mother of a child who was lost in that slaughter. In that infanticide. And who was present and was watching one more son Be killed and perish. Because there are many infants that died to save the one infant, and yet this man would end up being dying and saving the many. And then finally, you have the faith of Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the council. He's a respected member of the council. And this is important. Because the council is the group of chief priests and scribes that condemned Jesus in the first place. They were the ones who were after Jesus, who were conspiring to kill him. They wanted to chase after him, and they, were, they wanted to find a way to kill him, and they accuse him, and they do the illegal trial that Muhammad talked about. And so he knows the entire council is against Jesus. And yet at this moment, he asks for Jesus' body. And he puts him in a tomb that is out of rock. And generally speaking, it's easy, I mean, to bury someone probably doesn't cost a lot of money. Actually, it is actually pretty expensive today, especially in Silicon Valley, um, to to bury someone. Because land is expensive. And so to have a tomb that's cut out of rock, that's what you do for a king. That's the kind of tomb you have for a king. And as I mentioned, the way that you prepare someone for burial indicates something about their valued place in the community. And so what Joseph of Arimathea was saying He was supposed to hate on Jesus because that's what all the other council members did. But what he was saying is, this man has a valued place in our community and I want to treat him as a king even though he's no longer alive. And so there is a courage and there is a faith that Joseph demonstrates that is rare and that is a courage in the darkness because he has no obligation. In fact, every obligation he has is to ignore Jesus and yet in this moment, Where there is darkness, Joseph of Arimathea chooses to have courage and honor Jesus through his burial. So there's something that even though Jesus is dead, there is something about the kingdom of God, even in his death. And so this is where I want to close with my last point. That courage in darkness is about faith. And I want to go back to, I want to think about how this applies to us. Denise referenced a sermon from a couple weeks ago about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he falls to the ground and he falls apart. And you'll notice there's also a falling apart here with Jesus on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so there's a lot of talk today. There's a buzzword that we use that you hear often in our popular culture called vulnerability, vulnerability, And I would say, I'm a great supporter of vulnerability, especially since Jesus is vulnerable as he's on the cross. And he's crying out to God the Father that he's been forsaken. So I think vulnerability is tremendously important. And yet, what I want you to notice is that Jesus is vulnerable, but he's also, and he's also obedient. He isn't crying out and whining. And then running away from the cross. He cries out as he's suffering and he's breathing his last breath. So vulnerability is important in the context of obedience. Vulnerability is important in the context of obedience. So you can say vulnerability in the context of strength. That if you're going to be falling apart, you need to do it when you're obeying, when you're doing something that's good. Now you may ask the question, well, that's great, Fred. That's great. Uh, I'll do my best to fall apart when I'm doing something good. Maybe that'll be the acceptable you know, time for me to do it. But what, what if the rest of us, not like Jesus, want to fall apart before or after disobeying? You know, something significant's going to happen and we want to fall apart. Well, Jesus also has that moment. And it is in the Garden of Gethsemane where he falls apart. Literally, he falls on the ground. But you'll notice he does that at a very, in a very specific point with his inner circle. He falls apart in front of Peter, James, and John. And so if you're going to fall apart, if you're going to have vulnerability, do it with your inner circle. Okay? Do it with your inner circle. And why do I say that? Because I've noticed, with again, um, among people, maybe not people in our church, but definitely in my, in my years of ministry, people who um, will go on social media and post some of their deepest, darkest secrets and kind of their emo-ness, right? Um, and let the whole world see. And they just fall apart publicly, and I'm not, I don't, I want to be careful. I want to be careful how I say this. I don't want to say that I'm totally against it. I just think if you're going to fall apart, do it with the people that you trust and who know you and who can care for you at that moment. Because there's something about falling apart in public where you're, you're, you're really expose. You're essentially exposing yourself, right? You're exposing yourself for everyone to see. And It puts an imposition on other people it also puts you in a in a degree of shame where people may not know how to respond to it and so notice that when Jesus falls apart preceding obedience he does it with his inner circle the people that can actually care for him and I want I I definitely want to observe they don't they fall they they they're asleep they do they are not there for him but it was good it was important for Jesus to be able to fall apart with his closest friends so what am I saying? Number one, vulnerability in the context of obedience. Courage is vulnerability in the context of obedience. That vulnerability with your inner circle can precede obedience. So would you have the kind of inner circle, would you cultivate the kind of inner circle and friendships whom you can fall apart with and who can, whom can encourage you to obey? So my last point, to take courage and darkness as Joseph did. To take courage when you're in the darkness, as Joseph did. Now, again, I mentioned one aspect of the Christmas account is the slaughter of male infants under two years old. And we have the sanitized version of Christmas where it's all, you know, red and green, buying, buying presents, mistletoe, and all these, you know, pseudo-pagan rituals, right? So what I want to propose to you is that within your Christmas season experience, I actually want you to expect some darkness, I want you to expect some darkness. Instead of expecting immediate gratification and the present that you want, I want you to expect some darkness. And some of you already have that, whether it's due to job loss or job anxiety, whether it's due to isolation, whether it's due to family strife. You already can. You already are expecting some darkness as you're going into this Christmas season. And so, what I want to ask you is that would you have courage that even in the midst of that darkness? That the kingdom of God is real. That even though the darkness may hide the face of God, that the kingdom of God, that Jesus is on your side. And so the sharing question today, the sharing question today, let me make sure I find it, is what is darkness and what is courage that is close by? What is darkness and what is courage that is close by to you? And, you know, I, I'll, I'll admit, sometimes my questions are not great. I'll, I'll have a question for the sharing time, and it's not great. And last week it wasn't great, and you guys just shared whatever you wanted. Fantastic. You can, totally, you can, just, you can just totally do that. Um, but, I, I, you know, we, people ask for a prompt, so I'm giving you a prompt. And so let me, let me close with this. And I want to close with one question that I think is important as we think about Jesus' statement on the cross. And I want to first acknowledge that Christianity is weird. Okay, Christianity is weird. It's strange. And we have a saying, biblically supported, that at this moment when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That God the Father and Jesus were separated by a chasm. Right? Because Jesus is bearing the sin of humanity, and God the Father isn't. And he's kind of just looking at Jesus going, man, that really sucks. Right? That really sucks what you're going through. And then Jesus is there, and he's like, yeah, God, where are you? I don't experience you right now. And the reason that is... A problem is we also have this peculiar Christian principle called the Trinity, okay? And in the, the doctrine of the Trinity, it means God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there are three persons, but they're one, right? they are three persons, yet one. And so the question is, how can Jesus be suffering, and God the Father's like, oh, wow, that sucks for you. How can you have different emotional experiences among these three that are supposed to be one, Right? And so this is, this, I actually don't think it may be that complicated. And I think it's this, that Jesus, when he suffered on the cross, did not suffer alone. That God the Father suffered with him, that the Holy Spirit was groaning on his behalf. They were all suffering together. And yet the experience Jesus had was that he suffered alone. Because the, the face of his father was hidden in darkness. He could not see that his father's face was contorted in pain. Because the darkness hid his face from him. And so God the Father was experiencing every moment of suffering alongside Jesus, but the Son, but Jesus did not feel it. He didn't feel that fellowship at that moment. And that's why he's crying out. But that tells us the kind of love God the Father, the Holy Spirit have for us is that they're always experiencing alongside the Son. And what that means about the cross is that when you're in your moment of darkness, you may not see jesus face also contorted in pain for you because because if the cross is real if the cross is true it means you do not suffer alone there is one who joins with you in the suffering and one who sees on the other side so you can have courage in the midst of the darkness church let's pray together father god we come to the christmas season with mixed emotions On one hand, we know it is meant to be a time of joy and celebration and mistletoe and Hallmark movies and Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. And yet, Lord, on the other side, alongside those expectations, there is disappointment and loss and anxiety and loneliness and shame. And so, Lord, in our moments of darkness, Will we recognize that even though your face may be hidden from us, that we may not experience fellowship with you in that moment, that we can take comfort and take courage that in the darkness there is the kingdom, that in the darkness there is your Son, whose face is contorted with pain on our behalf. Thank you for what he's accomplished for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.